0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: Our first reader is a uh, person who's been a source of amazement to me for some time. If you wanted to think about uh, teaching, The single best documentary on the subject I ever saw compared the teaching techniques of Yasha Heifetz and John Wooden based on the assumption that someone with a a record like John Wooden's must be an extraordinary teacher. How about this record? Jack Clark is beginning his 27th year as the University of California's varsity rugby head coach. His record as a coach is 496 wins, 68 losses, and five ties. He's won 21 national collegiate championships. He's one of the winningest coaches. This says... He's one of the winningest coaches in Cal Rugsby's 128-year t- history. Duh. How many? <laughs> How many? Yeah, I have no doubt that you're one of the winningest. Anyway, what an amazing record. He was named by the Daily Californian as one of Cal's top 10 athletes and coaches in the 20th century. He's surely that. He's just a gift to this place, and he's agreed to be here today. Please welcome Jack Clark.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, it's uh, certainly my pleasure to be here, and I thank you very much for the invitation. I'm, uh, I'm not sure what it means when the rugby coach is uh, reading poetry to poetry aficionados, but uh, my, uh, my Irish ancestors have a saying. They, uh, they say, just give it a lash, and uh, that's what I'll do. Uh, I've, uh, I've also made one other assumption in my, uh, in my game plan here this afternoon. Uh, that is that uh, the humanities uh, would be like sport in the fact that when you're under a little bit of pressure, you know, you play with heart. And, uh, the, uh, and I'm going to take that tack today. And the poem that I will uh, introduce to you is one that is very close to my heart uh, for the reasons that uh, I'll share. Um, a couple of months after the big game on uh, February 19th, 1977, a dear friend and, and teammate of mine on the Cal football team lost his battle with cancer and died. His name was Joe Roth. He was uh, our star quarterback while being the most humble and team oriented person we had. He remains today, 33 years later, a personal inspiration to every one of his teammates. Joe was the uncommon man. He sensed early in the football season in 1976 that his cancer had returned. He, uh, He didn't tell any of us, not his friends, not his coaches, not not even his parents. He never unburdened himself. After the season, Joe's battle became public. Still, he never gave up hope. He enrolled for the winter quarter, bent on graduating. 26 days before his death, as part of a class assignment in Professor Scripps' Rhetoric 160, He stood in front of his classmates at Evans Hall and read this poem. Don't Quit, Author Unknown. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns, as everyone sometimes learns. And many a failure turns about when he might have won had he just stuck it out. Don't give up, though the pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Success is failure turned inside out, the silver tint of clouds of doubt. And you you can never tell just how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far. So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things seem worst that you must not quit. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jack, so much. And thanks for the, that story that went with the poem It gives us the history of this place. Um, our second reader is Suzanne Gerlach. She's a professor of modern French studies. Um, for a poet to study what's happened in literature in the 19th and 20th century, it means that you have to study French poetry and if you study French poetry you have to read the work of Suzanne Gerlach. Everybody who, who reads and thinks about it owes her an enormous debt. Her most recent book is... Uh, about the subject I really want to be thinking about. It's called Derrida and the Time of the Political. But I've been reading her book about the philosophy of time in Henri Bergson, partly because all of the American poets of the modernist period just went to school, to, to Bergson. And um, uh, he's, caught, he's fallen out of fashion as a philosopher. And just at that moment when people lose the feeling of the power and importance of a certain writer or thinker the best kinds of critics turn your attention back to what is to be learned from them and that's been Suzanne's work in poetry, aesthetics, and literature she's just an amazing critic and scholar and she's going to read us a poem or two Thank you so much
3: Thank you for the very kind introduction and um, for the homage to Bergson. I'm always welcoming homages to Bergson. Um, I, because of my teaching schedule, I'm going to have to leave right after I read, and I'm terribly disappointed to have to do that and miss the other poems, but I wanted to apologize in advance. Um, I think Lunch Poems is one of the best, or I should say coolest, to cite Robert Huss, things that happens at Berkeley, Um, and I'm really grateful to have been invited to participate in it. Um, partly because it um, set me back on a path of reading and more specifically on a path of a certain kind of reading that I had sort of lost track of, specifically reading English poetry, um, which it's made me very happy to to return to. Uh, I don't have a favorite poem. I will never have a favorite poem. <laughs> it's impossible for me. So I've chosen uh, a poem that I felt uh, felt to me like it suits the occasion of sort of kicking off uh, of a kicking off the series. Um, and I'm tempted to say why I like it, but I don't want to. So I will just read it to you and hope that you enjoy it too. Uh, e. E. Cummings, uh, "Anyone Lived in a Pretty How Town." Anyone lived in a pretty how-town, with up so many floating bells down, spring, summer, autumn, winter, he sang his didn't, he danced his did. Women and men, both little and small, cared for anyone not at all, they sowed their isn't, they reaped their same, sun, moon, stars, rain." Children guessed, but only a few, and down they forgot as up they grew, autumn, winter, spring, summer, that none loved him more by more. When by now and tree by leaf she laughed his joy, she cried his grief, bird by snow and stir by still, anyone's any was all to her. Someone's married with everyone's, laughed their cryings and did their dance, Sleep, wake, hope, and then They said their nevers, they slept their dream Stars, rain, sun, moon And only the snow can begin to explain How children are apt to forget to remember With up so floating many bells down One day anyone died, I guess And no one stooped to kiss his face Busy folk buried them side by side, little by little, and was by was. All by all, and deep by deep, and more by more, they dream their sleep. No one and anyone, earth by April, wish by spirit, and if by yes. Women and men, both dong and ding, summer, autumn, winter spring reaped their sowings and went their came and sun moon stars rain thank you
4: i'm stepping in for bob because he also is a teacher and has to leave early professor alex felipeenko um, he is a veteran of TV documentaries, and if you've ever heard him lecture in his field of astronomy, uh, you will immediately understand why. He is a much-published scientist, member of the National Academy of Sciences, 630 publications, uh, and one of the world's most highly cited astronomers. He's also winner on this campus of top teaching awards. We're very pleased to welcome you today.
5: Well, thank you very much for inviting me here. My untitled poem was written by the late, celebrated physicist Richard Feynman at Caltech. And the first public record of it is in an address he gave to the National Academy of Sciences in the autumn of 1955. It was also published in 1988 in a book of his, What Do You Care What Other People Think?, Feynman wrote this poem expressing the remarkable ability of humans to contemplate and understand nature. And he came up with it while standing alone at the seashore and just thinking about the cosmos. So now I'll recite it. There are the rushing waves, molecule. Mount. Sorry. There are the rushing waves, mountains of molecules, each stupidly minding its own business. Trillions apart, yet forming white surf in unison. Ages on ages, before any eyes could see, year after year, thunderously pounding the shore as now. For whom? For what? On a dead planet with no life to entertain. Never at rest, tortured by energy, wasted prodigiously by the sun, poured into space. A mite makes the sea roar. Deep in the sea, all molecules repeat the patterns of one another till complex new ones are formed. They make others like themselves. And a new dance starts. Growing in size and complexity, living things, masses of atoms, DNA, protein, dancing a pattern ever more intricate. Out of the cradle onto dry land, here it is, standing, atoms with consciousness, matter with curiosity. Stands at the sea, wonders at wondering, I, a universe of atoms, an atom in the universe." So, that's Feynman's poem, and to me, one of the things that poem says is that what really sets humans apart? from all other animals is this ability to explore the inner workings of of nature, to ask questions about the universe, and ultimately to understand how it is the universe and its contents work. And we derive great joy from this process. So it's almost as though the universe has found a way to know itself through us, right? We are the observers of the universe, the explorers of the universe, the brains and conscience of the universe. And no other life forms that we know of are so inquisitive and can do this. And certainly no inanimate objects like rocks can can do this. So people sometimes ask, you know, what is the purpose of the universe? Well, I don't know. Maybe the purpose is to produce organisms that simply enjoy being part of the universe for a fleeting moment. Organisms that have thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Or maybe the purpose is to produce sentient beings who can figure out and appreciate the physical beauty of the universe and the extraordinary way in which relatively simple physical laws give rise to essentially infinite variety. And indeed, as Albert Einstein once said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Alex. Sheehan Grant, our next reader, stuck his neck way, way out in suggesting a name for the library catalog two years ago. He wanted us to call it OSCIE Cat, And I immediately thought that was a good suggestion. I think it's the most controversial matter I've ever dealt with as a university librarian. <laughs> Thank you, Sheehan. Um, for the past few years, he has been the head of the privileges desk here. And uh, now I'm learning something about him. He supplements his income by hosting a weekly pub quiz in a Rockridge bar on Tuesday nights. (laughs) Welcome, Sheehan.
6: Afternoon, everybody. Um, So uh, I think like some other people who were chosen, uh, I didn't know that I would be doing a poem. I'm, I'm not really much of a poet-reader. I, I tend towards things more lyrical, uh, things that I didn't feel comfortable. I wasn't going to do a rap when I came into work. So uh, <laughs> so what I did is I went to my core, and uh, that tends to be things that are family-related, uh, specifically uh, things that interest me a lot, which are uh, my great-grandfather and the legacy that he left. He was a Pullman porter, and he worked on the rails for 63 years, uh, and he really was the paterfamilias for the whole uh, family lineage because of him All of his children went to college, and because of that, all of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren are now going to college and continuing on in education. So um, in a lot of ways, this is an homage. I I had to go and do research to find some poems about porters, but uh, I thought I'd just sort of at the very outset just explain briefly what a Pullman porter was, if it's not clear. George Pullman, uh, industrialist in the late 19th century, put together what is the way we ride modern rail now, which is Pullman cars and having a service uh, aspect in to travel across the country and what was the great adventure west in some cases or back and forth. To do the labor for this, uh, he took an able-bodied labor force post-reconstruction which was literally black men that uh, may or may not have had other labor opportunities In most cases did not. And so this was an opportunity for lots of men to have a fair wage at the time, a uh, gig that would allow them to provide for their families and uh, it provided for my great grandfather's family and I think the poem that I chose, which is Robert Service's Pullman Porter, uh, highlights a lot of the issues that are overlooked in service work and I consider myself a service worker here on this campus. some of those things uh, include highly educated, highly mobile, uh, motivated people that are working very often outside of their job cards, what's necessary, but wanting to provide a service for the greater community. And that was definitely true of my uh, great-grandfather. And uh, he, he did publish a, his own autobiography. And, and one of the quotes that I took very much to heart and I bring with me to work every day, and, and I, this isn't my words, these are his, but they are resonant for me is, I dare not say all our passengers were 100% on our side, but we had a slogan. I can go along with you two or three nights because I probably won't see you again. <laughs> really, though, there are so many good people who offset the ones who are grouches. And, uh, I mean, uh, my job here in the library is both the carrot and the stick. I am privileges and billing, so uh, I really identify with that. So, uh, Robert Service's poem, Pullman Porter, uh, highlights a few things and this is why it was important to me to read here. Um, it, it definitely articulates that porters in a lot of cases were very highly educated, working uh, maybe below their potential but with a job that they took a great deal of pride and integrity in. Um, it shows that there was a striving nature among many African-American men at the time and that they were providing for their families back home and as well as providing an educational environment. Uh, and looking towards you know DuBois, uh talented tenth and really working towards uh, striving ahead, and uh, the porter as a trickster uh, this is the opportunity for the porter to be uh, what he is underestimated as, which is uh, historically called George after the industrialists. Uh, every porter was generally called George, much to this dis- dismay, so with that, Pullman Porter by Robert W. Service. The porter in the Pullman car was charming as they sometimes are. He scanned my baggage tags. Are you the man who wrote of Lady Lou? When I said yes, he made a fuss. Oh, he was most assiduous. And I was pleased to think that he enjoyed my brand of poetry. He was forever at my call, so when we got to Montreal and he had brushed me off, I said, I'm glad my poems you have read. I feel quite flattered, I confess. And if you give me your address, I'll send you autographed, of course, one of my little books of verse. He smiled, his teeth were white as milk. He spoke, his voice was soft as silk. I recognized, despite his skin, the perfect gentleman within. Then courteously, he made reply, I thank you kindly, sir, but I, with many other cherished tome, have all of your books of verse at home. (laughs) When I was quite a little boy, I used to savor them with joy, and now my daughter, age three, can tell the tale of Sam McGee. While Tom, my son, that's only two, he's heard the yarn of Dan McGrew. Don't think your stuff, I'm not applaudin'. My taste is Elliot and Auden. <laughs> so as we gravely bade adieu, I felt quite snubbed, and so would you. And yet... I shook him by the hand, impressed that he could understand the works of those two tops I mention, so far beyond my comprehension. A humble bard of boys and barmen, disdained, alas, by Pullman (laughs) Carmen.
4: Thank you, Sheehan. Uh, Nick Jewell um, has been a professor in public health and statistics for nearly three decades. He is an expert on the statistical uh, analysis of HIV, of of SARS, and of H1N1, among other infectious diseases. He took um, six years uh, stepping back a little bit from this academic study to be a vice provost on this campus. But I suspect that today we will learn more about um, Nick's Scottish heritage. Nick Jewell.
7: Thank you very much. One poem, right? I thought, uh, as Tom mentioned, to go back to my background, I'm really not Scottish, I have to admit. I'm I'm making a confession here. Uh, My grandmother was born in Millbank Prison in London and was a great admirer of a contemporary young man called Rupert Brooke. So I thought about reading Rupert Brooke. If I should die, think only this of me, that there is some part of a foreign field that is forever England. But I was born and brought up in Scotland and had a great deal of trouble with the English all my young life, as many Scots do. So of course I thought about reading Robert Burns, wee sleekit timmering cowering beastie. Oh, what a panic's in thy breastie! But that's the easy part of the poem, and most of you wouldn't understand the rest. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to an America. I'm going to go to an American poet, bearing in mind that where I grew up, in a very small village, close to where the great River Clyde spills into the Atlantic in Scotland, where water comes together with other water by Raymond Carver. I love creeks and the music they make and rills in glades and meadows before they have a chance to become creeks. I may even love them best of all for their secrecy. I almost forgot to say something about the source. Can anything be more wonderful than a spring? But the big streams have my heart, too. And the places streams flow into rivers, the open mouths of rivers where they join the sea, the places where water comes together with other water. Those places stand out, in my mind, like holy places. But these coastal rivers, I love them the way some men love horses or glamorous women. I have a thing for this cold, swift water just looking at it makes my blood run and my skin tingle. I could sit and watch these rivers for hours, not one of them like any other. I'm 45 years old today. Would anyone believe it if I said I was once 35? My heart empty and seer at 35. Five more years had to pass before it began to flow again. I'll take all the time I please this afternoon before leaving my place alongside this river. It pleases me, loving rivers, loving them all the way back to their source, loving everything that increases me. Thank you.
4: Shai Kanaka is your... Um, librarian for Middle Eastern Studies and ling- Linguistics. Shai is a Kurd, born in Kirkuk, has gone back to that region several times to help build our collections. Shai, I haven't seen you, but I know you're here someplace. There you go. Uh,
8: hello, everyone. Um, First, I thought of a poem that I should read. It's about New Year, but it's a political poem. And I was trying to translate it, I realize it's too long and will take way too long for me to read it and make sense of it for you guys. So I decided to go back to my roots. Um, I I had an aunt who loved folk music and folk uh, songs. One of her favorite poets, Uh, who is also a a singer, very popular, with a lot of Sufi overtones. And she was a Sufi herself, but we were not supposed to know that. Sufism was underground for the most of my life because um, religious authorities is not like Sufis around, and they persecuted them when they found out about them. So the poem I'm going to be reading is called An Uncurable Ailment. Um, the one thing you should know about this is throughout Sufism, the heart is spoken of as the soul of humanity, of humans. And the soul has a will of its own. The heart has a will of its own and cannot be controlled by people. So this is a poem about essentially a man discovering his true love An uncurable ailment. Don't touch my wounds, friends. My ailment has no cure. Broken is the heart, its home is in ruins. By the time she unveiled her face, I had lost all patience, but the heart was enchanted and started to wander. The first time she walked by, my soul was on fire, and ever since, forlorn and demure. Is the heart the cup of my hopes overflowing with blood? But the heart is still faithful, be certain of that. For fate has decreed that the heart must wander the universe seeking union with the soul of souls. Thank you.
4: Please welcome Professor Rondolfo Mendoza-Denton. I just had a chance to meet him. He's a native of Mexico City and currently an associate professor of psychology here at Cal. His research interests include intergroup relations, cultural misunderstandings, prejudice, and education. Welcome.
0: Hi, everybody. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, I think the most difficult decision in, um, for me today uh, was whether to talk to you about how I interact with this poem before or after actually reading the selection. So I, I haven't decided yet. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> I, I think I think it is fair to say that um, you know just a little bit of background. I mean, I had a difficult time deciding on the poem because you know, love songs, Geoffrey Prufrock, Valediction, Forbidding Warning, all oh, way too long, you know. But um, you know, so as you can, I'm a, I'm attracted to sort of the classical. Uh, kind of stuff, and so I'm gonna uh, talk to you today, uh, recite for you uh, just a little bit of a very popular uh, few lines. Uh, they're very, very well known, but I don't think that we think about them a lot, and so I'm gonna recite this poem uh, slowly for you, um, and and then maybe, and I guess I'll tell, tell you how I feel about it uh, a little bit later, how it relates to psychology. Uh, it's from Shakespeare. Um, And it's from Macbeth, um, Act 5, Scene 5. It's uh, right when Macbeth uh, realizes that he has lost uh, Lady Macbeth, and uh, he's having an existential struggle. Um, And it goes like this. I should also say that without really my wanting to, I just, it stuck to me. I've memorized it all these years. um, So it's not, it's, you know, and and then I actually had it a little bit wrong. So if I falter, (laughs) forgive me. it, uh, the lines go like this. Uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So, you know, probably not the most appropriate piece for a sunny September <laughs> afternoon. Uh, but um, I think what it, you know, it, in, in a very funny way, I recite it to myself because it reminds me of the ephemeral quality of material possessions, of uh, those things that we strive for in life that we feel make us better than the other person, that award, that car, that, uh, that particular you know, piece of gadgetry that we want, and remind us that it all fades pretty much to nothingness at the end and makes us humble at the same time that it makes us realize what really matters to us. Not only can we not take it with us, uh, but it itself is ephemeral. Make, should be no surprise as a social psychologist that I consider those to be uh, those things that we keep that are really most important um, personal relationships. So thank you for listening. Thank you.
4: We are not going far, as far as the field goes, in introducing David Presti. He's been teaching neuroscience in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at UC Berkeley for nearly 20 years. He also teaches um, neuroscience to Tibetan monks in India. Among his central interests is the relation between consciousness and brain physiology, the so-called mind-body problem. David. David. Thank you.
9: Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you. Thank you. Real uh, honor and pleasure to be here. Um, the poem I'm going to read today is written by uh, the guy who also authored the textbooks I use in one of my big undergraduate courses on drugs in the brain, which is kind of an ethno botanical poetic work, that book. A rather different poem, though, that I'll read, which hasn't been published yet, and uh, it has to do with like cell phones and Wi-Fi and radio and television and electricity and uh, sunlight, and the, the fact that all of these things are explicable <clears throat> by a set of elegant mathematical equations that were derived in the 19th century by the Scottish physicist James Clark Maxwell, uh, who was also a sometime poet. Uh, And really, these equations um, are among the most beautiful uh, equations in all of physical science. And so uh, this poem is called The Maxwell Equations by Dale Pendle. In 1821, Michael Faraday suspended a wire into a jar of mercury, in the center of which was affixed a magnet. He passed current from a voltaic pile through the wire and the mercury and watched the wire rotate the world's first electric motor. Ampere, a few months later, made the magnet revolve about the wire. Faraday stated it clearly. A changing magnetic field can make electricity move in circles, and vice versa. If one speaks against a magnetic diaphragm, the squiggly voice signature is mirrored through lines of force by electric current in a wire, a microphone or, in reverse, the current pulling the diaphragm, a speaker. Just moving wire through a magnetic field was enough to produce electricity, like maybe a big coil of wire through a very large magnet at the base of Grand Coulee. Electricity and magnetism had been well-behaved. Each knew her place until Faraday pushed them around. Boundary transgressions were there from the start, like Prometheus helping mortals, or Lucifer challenging God. Faraday was working class. Davy took him in as his assistant, and, but made him serve as valet on their continental tour and ride outside the carriage. Faraday turned down two knighthoods, burial next to Newton, and refused to participate in weapons work during the war. He was a Christian. No one could have proceeded further without the calculus of Newton and Leibniz, the ability to capture motion in motion, a particular skill of James Clark Maxwell. Unlike many of his peers, Maxwell believed in Faraday's lines of force, and by interpreting them as tiny movements in some great ethereal medium, derived the laws of Faraday, Gauss, and Ampere by first principles, Uh, uh, as a series of hydromechanical differential equations. Maxwell, to make his calculus hold together, had to add a small correction to the work of Ampere, extending the concept of current to include a buildup of electric field, which he called the displacement. Maxwell combined his equations in his mathematical retort, canceled like terms, and distilled over the wave equation, its head in Faraday's flux and its tail in the displaced current. Beaches and jetties, a guitar string, undulations of a bat ray, pulses and millipedes, the crack of a whip, a weight hanging on a spring, harmonic motion, sines and cosines, seawalls shattered, wavelength and frequency." Like an alchemist, Maxwell recombined his products, stirred his flasks, cooked them with the fire of differentiation, and precipitated out the speed of light. Knew that he'd proved that Faraday had been right all along, that magnetism, electricity, and light were all in it together, all aspects of one force with many faces, thunderbolt, lodestone, corona borealis, amber." Einstein's prerequisite for special relativity was not that Newton work, but that Maxwell be invariant. Moving, standing still, or not knowing. Maxwell's dancers all move together. You have to solve them all at once. As an electric field changes, a magnetic field changes at right angles. As a magnetic field changes, an electric field changes at right angles. Until we're back where we started, a full wavelength, a snake with wings, a braid of co-creation, curling off through space at the speed of light to the end of time, and thus shines the sun. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Lena Mikkelsen grew up in Denmark and studied linguistics, philosophy, and cognitive science before joining the Berkeley Linguistics Department in two thousand and four. Her research is concerned with how word order, intonation, and inflection produces linguistic meaning. Welcome, Lena.
10: I'm going to read two short poems about childhood wonder, one from my own childhood in Denmark and one from my son's childhood here in California. The first poem was recited to me throughout my childhood by my father as an answer to some question I had or as a reaction to a shared experience we had. He always attributed it to Pete Hein, a Danish poet, inventor, mathematician, and designer. And I'll first read it in Danish, and then I'll translate it as best I can. Når jeg ser gennem nøglehullet, ser jeg en det ved jeg ikke. til den kan ligge. When I look through the keyhole, I see a horse standing. Why it's standing, I don't know. There's enough room for it to lie down. <laughs> the second poem was written by my friend and colleague, Carl Zimmer, who's here today, and I read it to my son, Oscar, and now I'll read it to you. It's called Rhyme Versus Reason. A person might wonder whether the moon would, if it could, eat all the stars with a spoon in order to be the only light in the sky at night. Thank you. (laughs)
4: Our last authority um, is Willis St. Hill, who grew up and went to school on the Caribbean island of Barbados. He currently works at UC Berkeley as a residential facilities manager, but he still keeps himself grounded as a West Indian. He loves reading and has taken every opportunity to keep up with the writers of the Caribbean. He especially enjoys hearing the Caribbean language and poetry. Willis.
11: Today I'm going to do a piece by Camus Baffet. And one of the things that Camus Baffet said in his writing of poetry is that he likes to use nation language. So as I speak to you, I'm going to try to use a little bit of nation talk so that I can take you back to Barbados for a few moments. The calypso from Camus Baffet is called Calypso. And calypso is the national music of the islands, so I'm going to try and put a little bit of calypso beat into the reading of this poem. The stone had skidded, arched, and bloomed into islands. Cuba and Santo Domingo, Jamaica and Puerto Rico, Grenada, Guadeloupe, Bonier. Curved stone hissed into reef, wave teeth fanged into clay, white splash flashed into spray. Bashiva, Montego Bay, bloom of the arching summers. The islands rode into green plantations, ruled by silver sugarcane. Sweat and profit, cutlass profit, islands ruled by sugarcane. And of course, it was a wonderful time, a profitable, hospitable, well-worth your time. When captains carried receipt for rices, letters, spices, wigs, opera glasses, swaggering asses, deptors, vicers, pigs. Oh, it was a wonderful time, an eloquent, benevolent, relevant time, and young Mrs. P's quick, irrelevant crying at 4 o'clock in the morning. But what of Black Sam with the big, splayed tools and the shoe-black, shiny skin? He carries bucketfuls of water, calls his mas just had another daughter. And what of John with the European name, who went to school and dreamt of fame? His boss one day called him a fool, and the boss hadn't even been to school. Steel drum, steel drum, hit the hot calypso dancing. Hot rum, hot rum, who's going to stop this bacchanaling? For we glance the banjo, dance the limbo, grow our crops by maljo, have loose morals, gather corals, father our neighbors' quarrels. Perhaps when they come with their cameras and straw hats, sacred pink thors from the far north, we should get down on those white beaches, where if we don't wear breeches, it becomes an island dance. Some people doing well while others are catching hell. All oh, the boss give or Johnny the sack, though we beg him, please, please to take him back. So now the boy migrating overseas. Thank you. That is Camu Braffit, Calypso. Have a good day.
4: Well, if Bob wasn't teaching, he would be telling you to feel welcome and come back to the full um, list of lunch poems and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for coming.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.